we do a little chant for those of you that are, are uh, maybe haven't been with us for a while or new to us. I don't think there's anyone totally new. But uh, yeah, so here's the, uh, the chant that we do. And the idea is that every time we practice Dharma in either study or practice, we should have a, a certain attitude of doing that for the sake of other beings. So we, uh, we try to uh, overcome our own self-imposed limitations so that we can help other sentient beings. So, in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, for my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, for my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, for my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps in the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Majushri, please accomplish this. So I mentioned the first chant. The first chant is uh, sort of a refuge in bodhicitta, aspiration in one. And the, uh, the bodhicitta part start is, goes first, which I love. In order that uh, I can help other beings, I take refuge. And then we have this uh, stanza composed by Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche that Trump Rinpoche shared with us uh, when he created an, a program of higher learning in Boulder, Colorado in 1982 called the uh, Natun School. And this stanza reflects an inspiration that was brought to Tibet by Atisha de Pomkra in uh, 1042 of the common era where he uh, said, he, uh, he acknowledged that there's all sorts of different views based on the teachings of the Buddha, all sorts of different teachings that the Buddha gave in different situations, different occasions to different people. And on the surface, they can be contradictory. However, if one disparages any one of those teachings, one creates, uh, one incurs the greatest downfall, which is disparaging the Dharma. And we miss the opportunity to understand that all teachings are relevant in in a certain way, at a certain time, at a certain place, and for a certain recipient. And uh, his statement was something to the effect that uh, when I realized that all teachings are precepts for practice, then I avoid the downfall of disparaging the Dharma. So understanding that all teachings are actual instructions for how we should uh, uh, relate with ourselves, how we should train ourselves. And so there. So uh, a little background on tonight's course. Uh, some of which I repeated or said earlier, so a little repetitive. But uh, welcome and thank you all for joining in this exploration of um, the subject of Vipashamata and Vipashna in the Vajrayana traditions in particular. And um, in the Rime Shedra program, uh, um, Meditation is one of the five topics of the Rime Shedra curriculum as, uh, as we've reformulated it here for the West. <clears throat> Strangely, in uh, Tibet, it was not 
meditation practice was in a separate system and the shadra uh, was only for study everybody did practice and only those who were interested in study did study and uh, the five topics were abhidharma pramana or valid cognition middle way or madhyamaka stages of the path and uh, um, conduct precepts pradimoksha vinaya and since I don't see any monks or nuns here tonight, are there, I don't think there are any of us who are monastic. Oh, Caitlin, it's monastical. <laughs> in, in essence. Um, well, we'll have to create, we'll have to do something just for you then. But uh, for the rest of us, uh, we replaced that topic with meditation. And so we study uh, meditation over and over and over again. And in 18 years of uh, three or four classes per year, it's totaling uh, something like 50, 60 classes over that time. Uh, like probably half of them have been on meditation and in particular shamatha vipassana, which is the basis of all samadhis as we know from the famous text on Shamatha Vipassana by Jamgun Kongshul and his Treasury of Knowledge. And uh, over time, if you look at the courses on the website, you see that we've done uh, courses on particularly focusing on Vipassana, uh, since that remains uh, sort of um, hard to understand and how to, hard to understand it what it is and how to implement Vipassana for many people. And uh, we did a course on Vipassana in the Theravadan tradition called From uh, Fright to Flight. <laughs> and then there was one in the Indian Mahayana tradition uh, whose name eludes me. And then, I uh, know, core, core text of Vipassana in the Indian Mahayana tradition very catchy title, and then uh, we did one in the Tibetan Mahayana tradition, and the implication was that we would do the same in the Tibetan uh, Vajrayana traditions of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. And um, very cognizant that uh, many of us here are not uh, Vajrayana students, have not received pointing out transmission. And instead of that, meaning that we can't study Shamatha and Vipassana in the, the Vajrayana tradition, it means that we just can't study some of it together at this point. Uh, but uh, perhaps down the road, many of you will become Vajrayana practitioners, and we can do that. But there's still a huge wealth of material that is accessible and, and available to uh, an appropriate rather to study with uh, those of us who have not received transmission. And um, on the other hand, you know, you go to Amazon or bookstores or Shambhala and Wisdom Publications, and there's an amazing amount of uh, material that is in the category that I'm referring to as restricted to, to Vajrayana students only, but it, it would be inappropriate to go through that in an explicit manner. Um, and um, Alan Wallace, uh, let's see, 
So the, the purpose of this course is sort of twofold. One is to explore the tradition of shamatha and vipassana in the um, remaining and i.e. mainstream traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. Whereas we, we went through the core texts on shamatha vipassana in the Tibetan Mahayana tradition, but by and large, as we all know, Tibetan Buddhism is Vajrayana, and uh, the main streams of practice in that tradition are Mahamudra and Dzogchen, which is not to say that there are not other streams of practice, such as the path and the fruit, the Lamdre system of the Sakya school, and the Glukpa school uh, also, also studies and practices Mahamudra, and then all of them study and practice uh, creation and uh, and, and completion stage meditation, Vajrayana practices, um, deity practice, Yadam practice, visualization practice, combined with mantra and other stuff. Um, so there's that whole swath of uh, Tibetan Buddhism that uh, is actually the sort of common image of Tibetan Buddhism with all the deities and the visualizations and so forth. Um, but the interesting thing is that Shamatha and Vipassana uh, run the gamut from the very uh, sort of entry-level, introductory-level practices that are found in all traditions of Buddhism, as well as in the Tibetan tradition, the uh, most advanced practices are in essence shamatha vipassana so mahamudra if you pick up mahamudra books and look through them it's shamatha vipassana if you pick up dzogchen books there's basically two types of dzogchen books one is sort of dzogchen view where they give you the general idea of dzogchen great completion limitless mind and awareness and openness and responsiveness and the creative play of the universe and, and that sort of way of introducing you to the view of Dzogchen. And then if you find books on Dzogchen that are actually practice-oriented, there's two types of practice in Dzogchen. One is called uh, Cutting Through to Primordial Purity. And um, that is, in essence, shamatha and vipassana. It has its own uniqueness, and so it would be a disservice to say it's just shamatha vipassana, but it, it, uh, in many respects it is. And so, um, just like Mahamudra, they're sort of outer or uh, outer level of shamatha vipassana-based Mahamudra and Dzogchen practice, as well as an inner level that continues after one has received what's called the pointing out transmission, the Vajrayana mind transmission, where one uh, receives uh, the indication of what the true nature of mind is from someone qualified and capable of doing that. And then one practices the uh, deepening, the recognition and the um, unfolding of that state of being within one's overall state of being. Um, 
So uh, I came across Alan Wallace years ago because I'm sort of obsessed with Shamatha Vipassana, as you all know. And he has uh, translated and written an enormous amount of books, it turns out, more than I had suspected when I even began this project of trying to consolidate all of his writings on the topic into one course. And I subsequently failed and had this uh, chop it into two courses, one on shamp, focusing on shamatha, and uh, the next one will be on Vipassana. And um, initially, I, 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 the earliest book of his that I read through, found and read through, was The Attention Revolution. And it was primarily like your basic Mahayana, Hinayana Mahayana sort of uh, presentation of shamatha, going through the nine stages and the obstacles and the antidotes. And it was very helpful. It was very helpful to really understand, I found, how the uh, obstacles and antidotes work together after, after many years of like seeing them as just like lists and uh, not really understanding uh, what the experience of them is and how they work together. And that really, that opened things up in a big way for me personally. Um, and then, so I became more interested in his books and checked out um, more of them and began to see that he was presenting this trend that really fascinated me. And uh, also, before I began this project of creating this course, I thought, well, there's just a few of his books where he presents this really cool uh, way of understanding and experiencing the progression of shamatha in particular and, Vaj and Vipassana, but really shamatha in, in the uh, Vajrayana traditions that I had not really uh, understood in the way that he explains it and um, much to my surprise in, in trying to put this course together I discovered that almost every book of his goes through the same material <laughs> and I realized that all of his books are basically based on programs that he's done and he just brings up that same material whether it's the four immeasurables or the seven points of Lojong or Shamatha Vipassana or Dzogchen. And uh, so it was hard to uh, not be uh, repetitive and, and uh, duplicate. Um, I had the opportunity, so I, I mentioned that um, I was interested in his writings and teachings, and I went with Jane years ago, like 2014 or something to a program of his in California in a Galupa Center in the middle of the Redwoods, which was part of the draw because I'm in love with the Redwood trees. And uh, it was on the nature of mind. It's not perfect. And it was like a three-day program or something, maybe four or something like that. And there were all his students there. And he's wearing white uh, whitish robes, not like perfectly white robes, but it's the white robes of a Nyingma uh, yogi or householder, lay person. And um, he came in and people prostrated to him. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> and uh, 
and people called him Lama Allen, which I've since uh, heard in other places. It's funny, in our community, we don't sort of use that uh, phraseology, but there's a number of other teachers out there in the Tibetan Buddhist world, Westerners who use, uh, call themselves Lama this, Lama that, Lama Willa Miller, for example, a Natural Dharma Foundation. So Lama Allen. And uh, I realized that people, many of the people there viewed him as their actual root guru, which I was sort of blown away by and realized that he must give um, uh, sort of uh, relate to people in a teacher-student way to some extent, which uh, I was sort of intrigued by. Um, and then in the course of uh, further pursuing his books and um, his teachings, uh, I learned more about his background, which is sort of fascinating. And uh, I'll try to, I should have circulated something or had something with me, but I'll try to rattle off uh, the highlights as, as much as I remember them, is that um, he got a P, uh, an undergraduate degree in physics from some college or other and then uh, he went off to somehow went off to india and ended up in dharamsala in like 1970 or something really early so one of the first westerners in india ends up at the this uh thing called the tibetan library of works and archives LTWA, which was set up by the Tibetan government in exile, the Dalai Lama's uh, um, government or community of the Tibetans that settled around the Dalai Lama in uh, Dharamsala, northern India, so primarily Galukpa. And um, they started, they published books, and early on, like, uh, they were one of the main publishers of, like, uh, interesting Tibetan books. And they held classes there. And some of the some of the great translators that we know, other great translators that we know, were there in the early days studying there, like Jeffrey Hopkins, and uh, I think Anne Klein, Sandra, uh, sorry, uh, uh, um, Sanjay Kondro. Maybe you know Sanjay Kondro, and uh, he. Uh, got really into studying Tibetan and uh, studying the philosophy, and he started to and and he became a monk. He was uh, one of the first ones um, ordained by the Dalai Lama, and he he went into there. There was a traditional shedra program that they held there, and he did uh, the first year of study, which was Abhidharma and Pramana, Valid Cognition, the sort of introductory books that one does for uh, in order to access the more advanced texts, which I'm hoping that we'll do next, actually, by the way. And uh, and then he said he he uh, had a choice. He could either go fully, full on into the Shedra program and spend, I think they spend the next like five years going through this text 
in Sanskrit, the Abhisamaya Alamkara, it's called the Ornament of Higher Realization, where it presents the, the different paths and stages of the Bodhisattva and the Shravakas in great excruciating detail. And they memorize the text and uh, the uh, commentaries on it, and they debate it, and so on and so forth. Or he could go meditate. A friend of his had a cabin up in the hills above Dharamsala called McLeod Gounge, a little meditation hut. And he went up there for five months and did a meditation retreat. And before he went, he, he asked and was um, granted interview with His Holiness the Dalai Lama to uh, get medita uh, meditation instruction. Which, you know, sort of unheard of these days. But back then, the Dalai Lama, was very few people knew about him and you could access him. And and so the Dalai Lama was like his first, his uh, main meditation teacher. And he goes up into the into the hills and there's all these other Tibetan yogis up there meditating in these, in cabins. And uh, through that he met uh, a few other main, uh, or a, few, uh, a number of other Tibetan uh, yogis or masters, a few of whom became teachers of his as well. And uh, um, you know, basically has this fire lit under him of, uh, of uh, really understanding meditation and experiencing meditation and uh, becomes a really good translator and starts translating for the Dalai Lama. And then these other teachers, they're all being asked to teach and they start asking him to translate. So he gets the opportunity to translate for these people. So he translates for uh, this gentleman named Gen Lam Rinpa comes to University of Virginia, one of the earliest schools to have a Tibetan Buddhist studies program with Jeffrey Hopkins. And... Uh, they do a, like a, a five-month-long seminar on uh, shamatha meditation. And he translates for him and creates the book uh, How to Practice Shamatha, which is a really great book on shamatha, some of you know, I think. And then he organizes a one-year shamatha retreat in, in uh, affiliated, I think, with University of Washington. Um, uh, which had one also had one of the earliest uh, Tibetan Buddhist studies programs, and um, uh, Gedun Lodro Rinpoche comes and teaches Shamatha there for for a year, and he lives with him in a little cabin that whole year during the program, and so he gets this opportunity basically to study one on one with this amazingly accomplished meditation master as well as scholar of the Galupa tradition. And as uh, I think we'll see in some of his writings, this this gentleman is one of the few people that actually had perfected shamatha. And uh, he, he tells the story of how at the end of the program, after all this like study and teaching about meditation, or at some point during the program, he says, okay, let's meditate. And so he goes into his posture and goes into meditation and every all the Westerners go into meditation. And this gentleman, Gendon Lodro, sits unmoving, unflinching for three hours. <laughs> and the rest of them are just like dying, you know. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and this gentleman basically would get up at five in the morning and, and meditate and then um, do the teaching and then come back and he would be up till one o'clock the next morning meditating. So just intense practitioner. And that like <clears throat> really lit the fire in, in Alan and he seems to have been that way since then. And he created this thing called the Shamatra Project which was held at Shambhala Mountain Center a number of years ago. I can't remember how many years ago, but it was this idea of getting people to do a three-month Shamatha program at Rocky Shambhala Mountain Center. And um, he's uh, created a retreat center. Uh, he initially had a place in Italy uh, that he was working on. Uh, somebody had given him land and building places there, and that fell through. Didn't, they couldn't, I don't know, get the permits or whatever. And then somebody gave him land in the southwest of uh, uh, maybe Southern California, like in the desert area. Or Crestone, maybe Colorado. In, in, yeah, part of Crestone. Not, the, not the, the place where all the other centers are, but like like across the valley, the San Luis Obispo Valley. But yeah, Crestone, thank you. So he has a thing called, uh, his main thing is in San, Santa Barbara called the Santa Barbara Institute for Consciousness Studies or something like that. And this new center, I can't remember the name of, but the idea is to put people into long retreats for shamatha. And they built like 12 cabins and I think they're all full now. And he has people just doing long retreats, some of which there's like no, you know, it's not like a, there's an end date necessarily. It's just like they're going to go as long as they can and want. And um, so he's really trying to do what, what Ed here said earlier, you know, do we actually have to achieve shamatha? He's trying to see if we can, if people, Westerners can actually accomplish shamatha and what that might be like. And um, uh, recently I've been, uh, so I mentioned uh, um, a couple of years ago I did one of his retreats by, uh, after they happen you can get the recordings on his website and, and uh, attend the retreat so to speak by going through the recordings and I did that for an introduction to Dzogchen retreat and then he's he holds these long retreats he, he used before the, the pandemic he was doing eight week retreats in thailand like every year and long retreats in other places like three weeks and four weeks and uh so i listened to one of the, uh so now last year during the or 2020 actually during the pandemic he did an eight-week course and i'm still going through that and um there's like 130 talks, <laughs> and I'm on uh, like 90 or 95 or something. So, in that, in that, in that course of those talks, uh, one of them, you know, some of them people ask questions, and uh, one of them, one of the questions one day was asking about his own personal practice, and he said that he. Uh, Something like he had gone to sleep the night before, I think at like nine o'clock and woke up at two o'clock and uh, immediately started practicing. 
and uh, the, the talk that he was giving was like nine o'clock that morning. And he said uh, that since he woke up, he'd already completed six hours of meditation in three, two, three hour blocks, two, three hour sessions. So he's like an insane practitioner. <laughs> and uh, he came and and taught at Garrison Institute a few years ago. And my wife, Jane, as many of you know, was the director of programming there, of uh, retreats there. And uh, so she uh, arranged for me to pick him up at the airport. And uh, we we talked, you know, I'd ask him questions on the way back, and he was just talking the whole time. And, uh, and then we got to Garrison. And then we took him out to dinner. The dinner was over, and we took him out at a restaurant. Jane and I got to spend some time with him. And um, he's <laughs> he came back, and he's like totally not into like being the teacher and hanging out with people. He didn't. He wouldn't take any of his meals in the in the uh, uh, what's it called the meal room, the cafeteria, the the uh, hall there. The, where the food is served and he wanted to eat all his meals up in his room and uh he basically comes down gives his talk <laughs> comes back and meditates and people would like request interviews and he'd be like oh. <laughs> so he's quite obsessed about uh, meditation practice um and uh, on the other hand, he's also obsessed, as many of you pointed out, and everybody I'm sure that read uh, the readings for tonight noticed that he's obsessed with uh, sort of critiquing the limitations of the scientific, the Western scientific world. And um, it's a, it, his exploration, he has like a number of books on Buddhism and science. And they have these science names. And uh, Henrietta? Um, I'm just uh, curious to, I guess, two questions. So the Dalai Lama has always been interested in that intersection of science and, uh, and meditation. So is that part of, is that where he, he sort of intersects with they, that? Yeah, I think they, uh, I think that was uh, Alan was a major influence. There was uh, these programs called the Mind Life Institute. Mm -hmm. Is an yeah. outgrowth of these programs that happened initially with a small group of Western um, uh, experts in various fields of. A lot of it is neuroscientists, scientists. I think, right? And and with the Dalai Lama, and they were initially meant as just like exchange of information. And uh, a lot of it turned out to be the Dalai Lama basically pumping them for education about Western science. And then a little bit of him talking about the Buddhist view on things like that. And, and many of these have been turned into into books that you can find and read. And if you're interested in that sort of thing, they're very interesting because there's all these different scientists. And Francesco Varela was one of the major movers in that. Alan... Uh, Tupton Jinpa, uh, many others. And Matthew Roche, Ricard, I think. Matthew Ricard is in there, yeah, a number of them. Don't they and, do uh, things like look at the brain? Well, it ended waves up, Rich, and... Richie Davidson was one of them, and it ended up he, uh, he created a center for 
the neuroscientific study of meditation in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and uh, has been doing these uh, experiments for many years now. There was a famous picture of Mingir Rinpoche a number of years ago who came and he, he hooked him up and he had like this this whole wig of electrodes on his head. <laughs> Very cool picture. Um, they have yet to like prove, you know, tumo or, or things, but they, you know, they've come up with some uh, quite convincing neurological proof of uh, very different brains that uh, certain people have. In particular, Matthew Ricard, actually, they, they don't give the names of the subject, but he actually was a, a, a very unusual in terms of uh, certain responses that he did to the way that, to, to the certain uh, tests that they do to uh, examine I the mind's he, reaction. They did something with him related to compassion. How right, they had that him. lights up different parts of the brain. And... Yeah, they had they had them meditate. They they do. I think it was three types of meditation. One was focused attention. One is open monitoring. They call it open awareness meditation, and the other was compassion. And uh, and he was just like totally off the charts with compassion compared to the normal. The others were definitely definitely distinctly different than most any other person but the compassion one was like way out there and um and derek i had one other question uh you had given us in your email a list of um other books to choose from besides the stilling the mind at some point could you give us some guidelines on on those other books i i just don't know which one to pick (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I'll, at I'll at some that. point. Yeah. 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 That's okay. that's good. Uh, let me write that down. Yeah. All of them didn't seem to be offered. Offered by the publisher, you mean? By by at the website that you you sent us to. Uh, I guess it was at, uh, uh, Wallace's website. Oh. I don't remember sending you to his website. Oh, I, I, I clicked on the book title and it went, took me right there. Yeah, there, oh, was a, there was a link. I didn't even know that. So there was hyperlinked. Oh, yeah. interesting. And I didn't even realize that. Some of, but some of the books weren't there. Um, uh, a couple of them were. I, I took the one that, you know, was there. <laughs> one that you could get? Yeah, I took what I could get. <laughs> yeah, so he basically has... Uh, well, I'll, I'll actually share with you, like, uh, in doing this course, I, I had lists of all his books, and I have, like, a breakdown of what each one of them contains related to meditation. I'll just share that with you and give you, give you an idea of what's in each book that might be relevant. And, uh, you know, and then you can get them at the publisher. It'll show the publisher for each, and uh, most of them are Wisdom or Shambhala, the usual suspects and his exploration in um, comparing science and, and Buddhism and Buddhist meditation has basically been in, in three areas one is physics which was his uh, undergraduate I think degree I think he came back after he was a monk for a while and then he came back to the West and uh, gave back the, the vows and the robes 
and um, then went and got an MA and then a PhD in uh, religious studies, I believe. Uh, but I'll circulate a, a bio. And um, uh, so physics is one area that he talks about a lot. Um, there's certain of his books that are like all about science and Buddhism. And then there's the rest of the books where he also talks about it. And, and as Ed said, when you attend a program with him, he also talks endlessly about Buddhism and science. And it's clearly like a big um, chip or pet peeve, you know, like a huge, not a pet peeve, like a major peeve of his. And the it is the scientific world's um, sort of, the, the main thing boils down to he's he's uh, feels it's completely uh, it, um, inexcusable that the Western scientific world won't use uh, introspection as a valid means of exploring the mind, and basically has never really accepted introspection as a valid way of exploring the mind, both in terms of neuroscience and in terms of what he also talks quite a bit about uh, the psychotherapeutic um, uh, area of uh, study and practice. And, uh, um, you know, I think he's got a very good point there. And uh, he's uh, also rattling off, he rattles off all these studies and books of people who uh, have done uh, studies of past lives, like, uh, you know, like supposedly conclusive uh, proofs or evidence of people who know things that they otherwise couldn't, and um, near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences that happen like during operations, things like that. And uh, he's clearly frustrated that the Western scientific world will not uh, research these in any serious way. So he talks endlessly about that, as well as the history. He goes back and, and like goes through all the, the major scientific figures endlessly. And uh, personally, I'm not really that interested in that whole side of things. So I've sort of tried to uh, uh, choose things that are more focused on meditation for our readings. But um, you'll see in the list, it's quite clear if you're interested in that topic, which, which books he really goes all out in that way. Um, so I, I mentioned he studied for uh, early on with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, these other two Galupa teachers, Gen Lombrimpa and Gedan Lodro, and uh, then he meets up with a, a, a Tibetan Rimshe uh, Rob, uh, Geshe Robchen, another Geshe, which is a equivalent of Kenpo, and is, uh, means that they've go, gone through like the twenty-year training uh, Shadra program the full thing, and they've uh, passed the exams, uh, named uh, Geshe Robten, who lives in Switzerland. And so he lives there and translates for him for some time, and translates some books for him. And, um, and then he comes to the West, and I, I haven't seen him say how, but at some point he meets up with a teacher named Gyal Chol Rinpoche. Gyal Chol Rinpoche. And, um, you know, the Nyingmas 
have historically had this relation, uh, sorry, the Galupas have historically had this sort of love-hate relationship with the Nyingmas over the uh, past like four or so centuries since the fifth Dalai Lama, who uh, became both the temporal as well as spiritual leader of Tibet and uh, consolidated power over all of Tibet. Uh, and with a certain person named the regent, uh, consolidated power in a rather violent way over certain parts of Tibet. And um, um, he was also a Tertan, a Nyingma Tertan, and received all this, these uh, treasure texts, all this terma, the fifth Dalai Lama. He's famous for this. So he like brought together these two traditions of Tsongkhapa, and his whole uh, heritage and, and world, as well as the, the Nyingma world. And uh, uh, Galukpa since then have sort of had this ambivalent relationship towards the Nyingma, um, where some of them will dabble in it and most of them won't. But the current Dalai Lama has, in case you're not aware of that, he, a number of years ago, he decided to study Dzogchen and he's very eclectic, as well as being just an amazing person. He's very eclectic, and he studied all the different traditions. He like studies voraciously, as well as meditates, you know, voraciously. If you've ever seen like programs on his daily schedule, it's you know, sort of mind blowing what he does every day at the age of eighty-four or something, and. Uh, he decided to study Dzogchen, and he sought out the greatest master of the time, who was Dilgo Kyanse Rinpoche, who was also uh, one of Trungpa Rinpoche's uh, teachers and uh, Dharma brothers, very close, one of his closest Dharma brothers, along with the 16th Karmapa, uh, after, after Trungpa Rinpoche's two root gurus of Shechen Kongshul and uh, Kenpo Gongshar. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had a relationship through Trungpa Rinpoche with Dilgu Kensei Rinpoche for many years. He came and visited the United States a couple of times when Rinpoche was alive. And I was uh, honored to, I was very fortunate to have been involved in that area of Trungpa Rinpoche's world and got to spend some time. And they told us, like, the first encounter when the, the Dalai Lama came to receive teachings from uh, Kensei Rinpoche. And no Tibetan will ever, like, dare to like be at a higher level than the Dalai Lama because he's Avalokiteshvara in person and they're totally into this heavy duty protocol system Tibetans and they just like know it it's in their bones and so you know of course everybody's like you gotta sit lower than the Dalai Lama and, he, and Kensei Rinpoche you know comes into this room where there are these two <laughs> two thrones, one higher and lower, and he sits on the lower one, and, and the Dalai Lama was like, like, no, no, you're teaching me. You're my teacher. You have to sit on the higher throne. And, and they have this, like, little, you know, sort of tussle about, you know, who's going to sit on the higher throne. And finally, they decide, okay, they'll have equal height thrones, <laughs> was the resolution to it. Uh, but he spent many, many hours and many days receiving uh, teachings and transmissions from Kensei Rupshe in a very intimate way. And um, 
so it's it's possible Alan was like around or involved in in that, and somehow gained an interest in the Nyingma teachings, uh, but ends up with this uh, very interesting Lama named uh, Gelter Rinpoche who lives in Oregon to this day. He's in his like mid nineties, and he's. Uh, uh, he manifests as a sort of a uh, little bit of an old dog uh, Nyingma style, with what's called all do- old dog style. Like very informal, very humble, almost goofy. It's like you, you interact with him and he's like a little like playful little kid um, and sort of goofs around all the time. On the other hand, he's an incredibly learned and accomplished master. And that seems to go along in the in the Nyingma tradition where the two of them go hand in hand of like uh, the more accomplished and knowledgeable they are, the more uh, unassuming and humble they are. And uh, he starts translating for Gelchramshe and translates a number of really pivotal and uh, interesting texts this book called Natural Liberation by Padmasambhava. It's a term of Padmasambhava um, that is uh, one of the, uh, it's sort of part of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is a term from Padmasambhava, but it goes through uh, liberation and uh, the six styles of liberation, the six cycles of liberation. And uh, Cynthia has it right there. And um, it, it has uh, liberation through uh, the death state, liberation through um, a number of different situations. And obviously one is meditation and one is uh, very advanced esoteric tantric practices. But the meditation one has uh, this, wonder, the one, this wonderful section on uh, shamatha and vipassana in it that presents this uh, interesting progression of shamatha and uh, upon the basis of which one practices vipassana. And uh, then he translates um, this famous text by Karma Chakme, who was a famous Kagyu master. Um, and uh, back in like the... Uh, probably the 16th, 17th century, maybe. And um, it's called the Union of Mahamudra and Mahati, and a number of teachers have taught on this text, a number of books. And uh, he, he translates it into, uh, Gelcharam, she gives commentary, and, and they're published as uh, Naked Awareness and a Spacious Path to Freedom. And again, there's these wonderful chapters on shamatha and Vipassana in these, these very uh, advanced Dzogchen texts. And, uh, and then uh, Gelcha Rinpoche teaches this text by Dujum Lingpa, a Terma text called the Sharp Vajra of Awareness Tantra. And again, it's all shamatha vipassana and then the advanced Dzogchen practices on the basis of that and uh, so he's he's translated that as well and these are available you can check them out and um, 
So Alan becomes steeped in these texts and these traditions and becomes basically a, a totally dedicated Nyingma practitioner of Dzogchen. Under uh, Geltram, she taking Geltram, she has his root guru and dressing in that way as a Nyingma yogi, as they're described with the white robes. And um, and so I found that all of almost all of his books, he presents this really unique perspective on the path of shamatha and vipassana, in particular shamatha. And um, I thought I would go through it briefly in one of the two texts that I circulated. One quick question, can I ask yeah. that that yeah. last text that you mentioned, the Terma text, Sharp Vajra of Awareness Tantra, and you said that one was published, but was it, what was the name of that oh, one? Oh, sorry, sorry. It's published under the name Vajra Essence. Okay. And it's it was published uh, like a small publication, like separately, and now it's available from Wisdom. There's like this three-volume set that comes with a commentary on it and some other texts, uh, a, a long commentary by Dujan Rimshe, a short commentary by this guy, Pematashi, and then some Uggs, uh, 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 Related text by uh, Sarah Condro, who was one of the greatest female uh, teratons and teachers in the last uh, century. And um, so, uh, one one of the things is actually not shown in in the current reading. So let me describe this one: is that he describes in this extremely clear and uh, um, very obvious way that there's basically two types, two systems for doing shamatha practice. And I had, a, I had, ex, we, those of us who study with Chuang Burmshe have experienced his way of doing shamatha practice, which is a little bit of a blend in that he begins us off in a, a very sort of open framework and then you learn like the obstacles and antidotes and uh, maybe you hear about the nine stages but nobody can ever remember them and uh, there's you know huge emphasis on on shamatha but we have this instruction from him of like shamatha's precision precise mindfulness and vipassana's open awareness panoramic awareness and there's there's a lot of instruction from him on how to work with thoughts it's not by not uh, trying to either suppress them or get them to go away or chase after them. And so Trungpa Rinpoche basically presents a little bit of a fusion of the two ways, but more leaning more towards one way. But Alan just like nails it, and I've seen a few other teachers actually also clearly delineate these two types of shamatha, which is that uh, he calls it the control model and the release model. And the idea is that most of Mahayana, Theravadan and Mahayana shamatha is the control model. We're trying to tame our mind in a, in a very, in a somewhat forceful, forceful way. We're trying to control our monkey mind. We have the object of meditation and then there's distraction. And those two are uh, opposites. And we experience distraction and we try to reduce distraction and come back to the object. And then the release model 
is releasing the fixation on there being good and bad, there being an object or a not object, and just experiencing being mindful without a, a definite object, just constantly mindful, undistracted, just this huge emphasis on not wandering, not being distracted. And when thoughts come up, not making a big deal of them. Not, you know, saying, oh, I got to go back to the subject. But just having a, this larger sense of awareness where you're not drawn away. There's no being drawn away from some ideal place that you're trying to maintain and, and control. So were you saying he goes back and forth between the two or versus the one we uh, no, he 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 explains that there are basically these two methodologies in the Buddhist tradition for uh, cultivating and achieving shamatha. That you can either go the the hard route, you know. And Trump Rinpoche, you know, I'm realizing as I'm saying this, in cutting through spiritual materialism, he has chapters called the hard way and the open way. <laughs> And, you know, maybe that's his way of characterizing these two ways is that, you know, we can either try to beat ourselves up and control our mind and really um, force our mind to be present and mindful, or we can, uh, through understanding the view, um, take a different approach to distraction and to neurosis and the habitual pattern and momentum of the mind and uh, accept it, acknowledge it, accept it, and let it go without it impacting us. Henrietta. Does he consider the control maybe um, one more advanced than the other? Like the release may be more advanced than the, the control model? Like you would start with the control model, but eventually you know we'll see we, we have readings on it and, and i can't remember if he actually presents them as a continuum uh but basically i've realized over the years that trunk Rinpoche does present them as a continuum where there's initially and i and i think it's a natural continuum that we all come to meditation as something to do and accomplish and a achieve and like be successful in like and we all have this understanding that meditation is about being present and thoughts are distractions and and so we go through that and we can be given the same instructions but we'll hear the ones that support that initial way of looking at meditation as being like other things that we do in the world that we have to strive at and there's the right way and the wrong way to hold your mind, and and um, if you if you're not exposed to other teachings, though, you'll exclusively stay with that control model, which is basically what a lot of Theravada and, and Mahayana traditions do. Not all of them, but Trump Rinpoche, as we know, is constantly presenting the idea of panoramic awareness and opening up and extending out. And that's his way of drawing us forward. And I think all of us spend many years trying to understand what he means by that. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> yeah, he does, uh, in his teachings, in his courses, which, which you're taking, 
the one from 2020. I'm taking, we're almost at the exact same place, by the way, from what, a year and a half ago? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm at 61, talk 61. Right. Um, he gets very, very uh, specific about, you know, fine details of the experience of meditation. But then he does these, for each class, he does a guided meditation. And that's really, for me, where the teaching from all the learning comes, because he's he's not so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's not so detailed, it's very accessible to, um, to listen to his his guidance and he does go back and forth for me personally i i think you know a lot of people like to say there's zokchen practitioners oh don't don't get involved with that uh you know watching this or watching that and, but my experience has been that if i uh, hang out in that spacious which is lovely but you don't. You, I need. I need the uh, the stability, and this and the spending the time also with watching aspects of the mind, um, to allow those to emerge more. Because I think that that's what is very commonly. Again, I'll reference myself. That's what draws me out of that spaciousness. Is all the subconscious neurosis that I have not dealt with. And um, so both parts, I think, uh, need to be done for me. Exactly, exactly. And that's what he he does. And that's what I think Trungpa Rinpoche does as well. Uh, On the one hand, pointing out that if you do Dzogchen practice or that style, that release model too early, or exclusively, you don't really go anywhere. You just like develop this sort of uh, murky state of relaxed mind. And um, so it, it has to be a progression and it has to be go hand in hand. And I think both uh, Trung Brimshan and Alan Wallace present it that way, that you have to get the basics down and then you can gradually open up into the release model or the open model. Yeah, I have, I have a friend in Hudson and he's Zogchen and he doesn't have the intellectual analysis. And so, yeah, he's just kind of drifty, you know, and he collects people, but I'm like, but you're just, you know, it's just happy-go-lucky imaginary thinking. I was like, where's your analysis of, of consciousness? You know, and, and you're misleading. And yeah, it just goes around. So I, yeah. I, I've seen that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you really need to be honest with yourself and notice that there's still a, a huge amount of uh, dullness and discursiveness going on and to uh, delve into Dzogchen style meditation exclusively or too early is, is, a, is a big mistake. And so uh, 
many many teachers now emphasize this. Um, and then the the other thing in our little time available, let's see if I can share this. Which one is it? Observing the space of mind. Here it is. Can you guys see this text on screen? Cool. Yep. I haven't cleaned this up. This still has a lot of mistakes in it, but um, you sent us one that was a photocopy of of the book, I think. No. Yeah, yeah. So here it okay. is in a, in a nicer format, but it's contemplatives. Uh, let's see. Uh, have taken special interest in the possible differences between the way mental processes appear and the way they exist, a concern raised more recently, blah, blah, blah. They found that mental states and processes often appear to be relatively static upon, however, upon close examination, all the contents of the mind, as well as our awareness of them, are constantly in flux, arising and passing. A relatively homogeneous continuum of a mental state such as impression, depression may endure for a few minutes, but even that dissolves into discrete pulses of awareness. Um, let's see. He continues along the same bend. So this is not really the... Okay, as noted previously, all usual kinds of experience, sensory introspective or structured by memories, languages, beliefs, expectations, which cause us to assimilate even novel experiences, whether we want to or not. And one of the names for the meditation practice I'm describing here is settling the mind in its natural state, which implies a radical deconstruction of the ways we habitually classify, evaluate, interpret experience. The Buddhist hypothesis is that it's possible to profoundly settle the mind that virtually um, to so profoundly settle it that virtually all thoughts and constructs become dormant. The result is not a translite vegetative comatose state. On the contrary, it's a luminous, discerning, intelligent awareness in which the physical senses are withdrawn and the normal activities of the mind have subsided. The culmination of this meditative process is the experience of the substrate consciousness, the Aliyah, that says Aliyah Vijnana, by the way. I have to fix that, which is characterized by three essential traits, bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. Quality of bliss does not arise in response to sensory stimulus, um, nor is it based on pleasant thoughts or images. Rather, it appears to be an innate quality of the mind when settled in its natural state beyond the disturbing influence of consciousness and unconscious mental activity person who has achieved this state of attentional balance can remain effortlessly in it for at least four hours, with physical senses fully withdrawn and mental awareness highly stable and alert. The quality of luminosity is not any kind of interior light similar to what we see in, with the eyes. It's an intense vigilance that has the capacity to illuminate 
or may consciously manifest anything that arises in the mind. Um, this is analogous to uh, lucid, dreamless sleep in which one is keenly aware of being deep asleep in a kind of wakeful vacuum state. The empty space of mind, so you, you see he's going through the three qualities of bliss, luminosity or clarity and emptiness that are talked about as being experiences one uh, might encounter in the deeper states of meditation. And uh, these are the three qualities of the Alaya Vijnana, which is the natural state of the mind in terms of the, the sort of relative or samsaric mind. The Alaya Vijnana, the all-based consciousness, is the foundation of our samsaric mind. And it has these qualities of it's blissful, it's clearly knowing, and it's empty. And, and vacuous or limitless, spacious. Space of the mind, once it's been settled in its natural state, is called the substrate. is really Aliyavijnana. Due to the relatively non-conceptual nature of this state of consciousness, there's no distinct experience of a division between subject and object. The subjective substrate consciousness is non-dually aware of the objective substrate. We, it's the mind experiencing itself, an experiential vacuum into which all mental contents have temporarily subsided. The mind be, may now be likened to a luminously transparent snow globe in which all normally agitated particles of mental activity come to rest. This natural or relatively unstructured state is permeated with extraordinary amount of creative energy. Now, as... Uh, Cynthia pointed out to me in discussions with her about this before tonight, this term, the natural state of mind, we often associate with like the, the enlightened state of mind. But in this case, he's saying that the natural state of mind refers to the Alaya Vijnana, which is the basis of uh, samsaric mind. But it's the very um, uh, subtlest most level of samsaric mind, the essence of samsaric mind. And so in that sense, he's, he, uh, he's saying that tr the tradition calls it the natural state of mind. And so when, when teachers say, rest in the natural state of mind, they're actually pointing to this, to resting in your Alaya Vishnana. Uh, nobody, none of I us could... can rest in primordial wisdom. Primordial wisdom is what you experience when you break through the natural state of mind of the Alaya Vijnana, then you experience primordial wisdom, which is not mind, but is wisdom. And nobody who's not like enlightened can achieve the experience of primordial wisdom. So the most that we can hope for is the natural state of mind of the Alaya Vishnana. And now we hear the, the, uh, uh, in the clarification from Cynthia, please. I was going to say it depends on what teachers are talking about because not all of them would say that. Uh, some definitely do make the distinction. I mean, even if, as you say, the capacity of a particular individual may be such that they don't, actually experience the 
fully enlightened state of mind, but in terms of what you are aiming to do and what you're being instructed to do, you know, I, I can remember one case where somebody asked about the slogan uh, of resting in the nature of Alia. Um, and even that they were like, no, no, you don't want to do that. <laughs> so very much, you know, I think it's, it's, it's not all teachers that would say it this way. Yes, different teachers will say different things. On the other hand, it's universally impossible for sentient beings to, to go beyond the, the Ali Vijnana without becoming enlightened. So to rest in the enlightened nature of mind is sort of like saying, uh, fly around the room. <laughs> we do have to aspire to uh, the right goal. Well, that's the aspiration, but the practical, uh, to be, it's also helpful to be practical. And uh, the practical thing is to, is to experience the substrate or Alaya Vijnana consciousness, which is in the, in the Dzogchen system, we'll see over and over again in these texts that that's presented as the culmination of shamatha practice. That shamatha culminates in, um, Resting in the the Ali Vijnana, whether we call that the natural state of mind or not, and uh, probably we shouldn't since that's confusing, but just call it the Ali Vijnana. And then Vipassana is what then uh, makes it possible to go beyond the samsaric mind of the Ali Vijnana and experience primordial wisdom. Um, I could. Uh add something or actually ask a question for sure um i i kind of thought that alan in one course that i uh, listened to said that the that there the pristine awareness does shine through and can be seen to varying degrees of uh in other words uh like the sun is, the sky is covered by clouds, but sometimes the sun does make it through. Um, the other way of looking at it would mean that one moment you're totally unenlightened, and then the next moment you're totally enlightened. Um, so I don't know the answer to that. It just, um, I wonder. Yeah, I think that might be a good thing to, to explore a little bit. You know, is it, did I make my question at totally, all? Totally, totally. So you said two things, and let's let's try to remember those as we go through the readings of this course. One is that uh, you said that Alan either says or uh, implies, but I think you said he says that the pristine awareness realm shines through into the samsaric mind into the Ali Vijnana. And, and I agree, he does say that. And those are the qualities of bliss, luminosity, and emptiness that um, are, are the nature of the Ali Vijnana mind. And those are like dim reflections of aspects of pristine wisdom mind. But as you said, they're sort of uh, obscured by clouds of ignorance of thinking that I exist. The Aliyah Vishnana still has the, the belief in its own existence. Right. There's the, um, 
the self-referencing. Right. Yes. Dominant. Right. This is okay. this is reminding me of the Buddha nature teachings of the Gotra, where it's the same. where it gets revealed. Yeah, yeah. And then the the second thing you said uh, is uh, is it an instantaneous experience of breaking through, or is it a gradual experience? And that's also a big uh, topic of discussion. And uh, most most teachers will say that. It's a gradual process until you instantaneously break through. <laughs> uh, but still, it's sort of questionable. Do you, do you get little chink holes in the Alia Vijnana where you, you let in a lot of uh, pristine mind? Or does the Alia Vijnana, um, uh, if you make one little hole in it, does it all collapse? Is sort of what you're asking. Or what well, that you know, is I'm... getting at? And in the and there's the notion of glimpses, which is fairly uh, extensively used in the Vichadaras teaching, uh, and I think that notion of glimpses has a little bit to do with those, you know, the poking of the holes. Um, and in another traditions, they talk about um, the notion of stabilizing, like, and so I think the idea is okay. You may have a, a momentary experience, but you know, until you can really stabilize that. Um, you know, you're not there yet. And and many many uh, texts and teachers will present the view that the little uh, what what we think of as being little holes in the Alivijana that let uh, little glimpses of pristine wisdom mine in are actually little holes in the fabric of. Uh, dualistic, discursive, neurotic mind that led in the experience of the Alia Vijnana. And that mm. the experience of the Alia Vijnana is incredibly powerful and seems like enlightened mind. And that a lot of advanced meditators mistake the Alia Vijnana for enlightenment and they mm. stop there. And uh, Alan speaks about this a lot, about meditators who have ex- who have achieved shamatha and they're like oh it's just great I, I just like dwell in shamatha all day long and i'm in, just happy as can be and he's like did you, you know, did you then use that to uh, understand the nature of ego and enlightenment and they say no why would i you know do that i'm having such a good time well that that makes sense in terms of all the stuff we've been reading because i'm like Okay, I, I see that experience, the openness and everything. It's like, but they keep Five saying million. something more. And I'm like, what's the more? And so that, that makes sense that that's not the enlightenment. That's the Ali Vishnana when you get to yeah. awareness. Yeah, and that's huge. I mean, to rest in the Ali Vishnana is like, oh, my God, that's enormous. You know, but that's, that's a way station. And that's not the final goal. And you have to, you have to pierce through that. Um, Anya. Yeah, I, I mean, I know we're almost out of time, but I guess I was a little surprised to see so explicitly said uh, the point about withdrawing the senses. I mean, I wasn't expecting that and had never uh, thought of that as a part of any of this. <clears throat> I mean, it sounds yeah. like a trance state to me. Yeah, me too. I, I read that part and I said, no, your your senses are heightened, not 
suppressed. So I don't know what he meant at that little section there either. Is he, refer is he, referring, to, is he referring to the jhana absorption state? In the, in the jhana absorption states, the senses are totally cut off. Uh, but when when one sinks into the Aliyah Vijnana, you know, remember the view, those of us that were in the last course of the, the Luminous Heart course, and the view of the external world. Do you remember what that was? The what? <laughs> the what exactly. The, you know, so if you sink into the Aliyah Vijnana, the you realize that the Aliyah Vijnana is, the ex, is what you thought of as the external world, is your Aliyah Vijnana. So there's no longer sense experience of any outer phenomena, but one's just experiencing this internal Aliyah Vijnana world. And I believe that that's what he's talking about when he describes that, that we're not actually um, cutting off experience per se, but we're, we're uh, cutting off the belief that there is some external uh, sensory experience and we're just experiencing the Ali Vijnana instead. It sounded kind of uh, scary, actually. He talks <laughs> about the deep space of the mind and thousands of hours of observation reveals normally hidden dimensions that are more chaotic. So, I mean, it really sounded kind of like not terrifying, actually, not beautiful. Well, you know, uh, um, if you've studied Vajrayana teachings with a Vajrayana teacher, most of them will spend a lot of time scaring you. Have you had that experience yet? No. Well, that's coming. Um, you know, when you when you access the deeper, deepest. Uh, recesses of mind. There's a lot of weird stuff down there, and I mean, we we have we all have the experience of you know sitting in meditation and having, uh, you know, the waterfall experience. You know, just like tons of thoughts, and then you have the experience of like bizarre thoughts come up. You know, and um, that experience of the of like torrential thought and what and bizarre thoughts increases you know because if you believe the whole story we've been like taking rebirths since time immemorial and there's like a huge amount of weird shit in there and you're releasing all that stuff and and experiencing it that's been like suppressed there and it can be really uh, horrifying and so there's this fear aspect that happens both in relation to that material as well as we begin to get real intimations of groundlessness you know, we talk about groundlessness, but uh, uh, the experience of the groundlessness of the Aliyah Vijnana, where you no longer have a sense of subject and object and a strong sense of me as opposed to other, that's a very scary experience. And most, you know, our whole uh, emotional apparatus revolves from the fear of not existing. But, you know, so uh, as you get closer to that, it gets very scary. So so what I found kind of interesting is that you're talking about withdrawing the senses, but at the same time, you're having this experience of your mind. It sounds like there's a lot of emotions going on in there. So yeah. 
what yeah, is, as you go deeper that, and deeper. Yeah. But then w- once you hit the the actual Aliya Vijnana, that then clears out. It's like you know, as you go towards the bottom of the proverbial pond, you know, the silt is like heaviest down below. You know, but then once you reach the bottom and you stop there, you know, the silt goes up for a while and then settles and then it's just totally still. And then the other thing that he presents and we'll go through real quickly is that uh, the the traditional sequence in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions of Shamatha is that one starts with a concrete object of meditation. And there's a very... Um, definite subject-object quality of the meditator, where it's, I'm meditating on my breath. And um, over time, we lose the sense of there being some object that we're meditating on, and we realize we're meditating on our mind's experience of, in our case, the breath. We're meditating on an internal experience of what we think is some external phenomena, whether it is truly external or not. We're actually meditating on our own mind. And we're not talking about the ultimate or primordial nature of mind. We're just talking about the uh, experiential nature of mind. And Trump Rinpoche talks about this when he goes through the four foundations of mindfulness. He talks about psychosomatic body. We're meditating on our projection of our body. And then the the heaviness of the object dissolves. And Trump Rinpoche also talks about this in places where the sort of clunkiness of having the, the breath as an object lessens. And we're just meditating on the um, the experience of being in space. And then the third stage is meditating on the awareness itself. Gradually we then invert the, the awareness that previously has a sort of outward directed methodology or, or a framework. And we then direct our... Uh, our awareness back in on itself. And then that is the start of the Vipassana exercises and, and practices. Um, but in, in these traditions of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, those are presented as distinct three stages and they describe them very clearly and separately. And I think you'll see as you read through them and, and reflect on the way Trungpa Rinpoche and, and probably other teachers teach the progression of meditation that um, we're actually going through that same progression in our practice, where initially we have this very strong sense of meditating on something, and then gradually it's like we're just in the meditation of experiencing the mind. And many of us don't then turn the awareness around. That's the special Vipassana practice of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. But uh, definitely that second stage. And so we'll see that mapped out very clearly, in both in the traditional text that he translates that we'll see from uh, Padmasambhava, Maitripa, and uh, Larablingpa, as well as his own writings. So we're a little bit over time and my computer is about to run out of battery.
any final comments, suggestions? Um, he also gives, uh, as as uh, Edward was saying, he gives wonderful meditation instruction, and uh, so a number of his books have those. And I'm going to try to like put one in each class, and maybe we can do that with the understanding that the 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 uh, the greatest mistake you could make is to change your technique frequently. You know, if if you want to make progress in meditation, you do the same technique. You refine refining that technique is different than doing different techniques. So like he might present counting breaths, and many texts do that. So when we study things like that, I'm not suggesting that you try counting your breaths. I'm suggesting that you understand these other techniques and what they're doing and how that might reflect on your own technique. Uh, but there is a, a, a growing, a deepening subtlety of how we apply our own technique and you'll, and and as you go along your path of practice and also studying about practice, which is essential to progress in the doing of the practice, you'll become more sensitive to the way Trungpa Rinpoche describes the progression of meditation and how he describes going from um, uh, riding the breath initially to experiencing what he says, the verge of the breath. You know, and clearly he's trying to present a progression where uh, of going from a, a very clear subject-object uh, course type of shamatha to a much more subtle type of shamatha. So that was mostly me, and I didn't let anyone else say any final words. What else? Any anything else? Anyone? Well, we have more time. We have many weeks ahead of us, the magical number 13. Thank you, Rhi, and thank you for joining us. And let's just do our closing chant quickly. For those who are not familiar with it, here it is. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, joining in on this. And uh, have a good evening and uh, happy New Year. Thursday's New Year. Water Tiger Year. Happy and, New Year. Uh, tonight is the, the Dun season is over. So be well. And, see and our president year. is talking, so go listen. Bye. <laughs> and tomorrow's cleaning day, right? That's right. Thank you.